If you will, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. How many times are you coming up here? One more? Yeah, I really appreciate Cody uh, stepping up to lead us in, uh, in song this morning. There's a lot of things I'm willing to do. I'll stand up and talk in front of anybody. I'll work, I'll try anything, but uh, singing in front of people is terrifying uh, to me. And honestly, it would be terrifying for you to experience that. So, uh, thank you, Cody. All right. Who's next? Who's coming up next? Anybody else? You want something over here? I'm just going to pause for a minute. Make sure everyone's settled. All right. Romans chapter 8. Boy, we had some um, some good news uh, Friday, did we not? Man, some victory. In case you've been living under a rock... Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, that is a victory, amen? amen. I just got to be honest. Yeah, give the, give the Lord a hand. I got to be honest. I, I never thought that I would live to see the day where we overturned Roe. Uh, I, I, I celebrated, I rejoiced, I cried, and then I realized there's, all right, that was great. That is one step. Because abortion is no longer uh, federally protected, but it is still legal in our country. Uh, There's much more to be done. We still have a lot of work to do to abolish the priests of Molech in our day. And and I I want you to just note something. As, As you read through the Old Testament and you see times of victory when Molech is conquered, the prophets of Baal are cast aside, when the Asherah poles are torn down, what is it that you inevitably see a few chapters later? They're back. This is a day of celebration. It's a cause for celebration. But there is much to be done. There's much to be done to eradicate the message and the ministry of the prophets and priests of Molech. We must make Molech worship illegal. We must redeem biblical sexuality. We must restore a biblical understanding of marriage and our culture that extends beyond the basics of man and woman to what those roles within a marriage look like. There is much to be done. But man, what a victory. Amen? All right. I just didn't feel like we could meet together as the church of God and not celebrate that. Alright. That has absolutely nothing to do with my text this morning. (laughs) Nothing. But God is good. We're in Romans 8, and we're going to be in one verse this morning. So this is a challenge, okay? Anytime you're just just dropping in to a book, and you're going to preach one verse in the middle of that book, uh, boy, there's going to be a lot left. So we're just going to acknowledge that. Romans 8 is uh, considered to be the gem of Romans. Romans, of course, is considered to be the gem of the New Testament. So this is like the pinnacle. 
And we're going to start in verse 1 this morning. And you just read verse 1. It doesn't take a lot of context for you to understand how magnificent this verse is. How glorious it is for the saint today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Alright, so we can just stop right there. We can say some amens. We can celebrate some hallelujahs. And we're good to go, right? I mean, I'm good with that, aren't you? Let's talk about it, though. Because, man, what, what glorious truth we have in this passage. To know that there is no condemnation. And I look at our culture. I see just vile wickedness around. And what, what Romans 8, 1 reminds me is that that's me. That's me, every bit of me right there apart from Christ. So I need this verse. I need the truth of this verse. I need it to be the center of my rejoicing, the center of my hope, the center of my dominion pursuits. So, this morning, I just want to look at uh, four reasons for us to rejoice this morning from Romans 8.1. So, I, I, I'm not an alliterator like Matt. I don't even typically do points that make sense. Here we go. The complete gospel, our complete justification, the complete ministry of Christ, and the, the complete security of the saint. We'll flesh those out as we go through. But our first reason to rejoice in Romans 8.1 is the complete gospel. Now you know, you've been around Matt long enough, you've listened in Bible studies long enough, that when you see the word therefore, you ask, what's the therefore? therefore. Oh, I love you people so much. We ask what that therefore is there for. And ah, man, uh, there's so many ways to answer this this morning. You could look at the end of chapter 7. At the end of chapter 7, uh, Paul is walking through uh, what it looks like to struggle under the weight of the law. Right? He, he gives us this great picture. I think of every one of our lives at one point or another. I want to do good. And then what happens? I do evil. And then we say, well, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do evil anymore. This sin is done. I'm done with it. And then what happens 20 minutes later? The next day, the next week, what happens? There it is, crouching at your door. And there you are, overcome again. Paul gives this great picture of the life of the believer. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, no, 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 no. Paul's not talking about the believer at the end of Romans chapter 7. He's talking about a lost person. You can be wrong if you want to, okay? But the reality is that Paul is painting a picture of the insufficiency of the law. He says it can't save, it can't redeem. So you look at that and you can say, look, Paul brings us to this point of despair. So he cries out, who can deliver me from this body of death? Christ. And he comes to verse 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think you're okay to come to that conclusion. To say that that therefore is there because of the end of chapter 7. I think you're okay there. 
but you're not great. Because if you, if you just go to the end of chapter 7 to hang that therefore on, you're missing something that Paul does in Romans. If you're familiar with Paul, Paul loves a run-on sentence. He's never met a comma that he didn't like. Romans is one continuous thought stretched out over like four sentences, okay? But what Paul does is he uses therefore strategically throughout Romans. I mean, it is everywhere. 17 times he's using therefore. He's making a point, therefore. He's making a point, therefore. But not only does he use uh, therefore frequently in Romans, but he does so at strategic points to hang huge theological truths on. In chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, I would argue here in 8, verse 1, and then 12, verse 1, are the primary therefores of Paul's argument in Romans. And what we find, let's, go to, let's just flip, if you will, to 5.1. It's the previous therefore. Paul has made his argument, and now he's jumping into justification more thoroughly. Romans 5.1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's another one. That's another good one. Amen? <coughs> Y'all still asleep. That's a good one, right? Amen. There it is. There it is. All right. A little Bapticostal in here this morning, okay? <laughs> what Paul does in chapter 5 is he begins his formal argument for justification by faith alone. Chapter 6 and 7 are parenthetical to the argument for justification by faith alone. In chapter 6, he argues for sanctification as the result of that justification. And in chapter 7, he argues that the law is futile in salvation. So he comes back in chapter 8 to his argument he began in chapter 5. That if we are justified by faith... In the finished work of Christ, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're justified by faith. We're not justified by the law. In fact, he argues even in chapter 6 that we're sanctified. Not by works, not by the law, but by grace through faith. Chapter 8, he begins, he resumes his argument. Why? Why is it that we stand uncondemned? Well, because we are at peace with God. That's a phrase that we can throw out there and we we just let it roll off our tongue. But friends, have you stopped to consider the enormous magnitude of that statement? You, rebel, hater of God, are at peace with the one who created you. With the one that you rebelled against because of his great love and mercy extended to you in Christ Jesus. Why is there no, no, no condemnation? Because we are at peace. Not at enmity, but at peace with God. That therefore is there to hang meat on this argu- argument for justification by faith. Our second reason for peace 
You're like, we got four reasons and the first one went quick. That is the quickest reason we've got. So settle down. Second reason for rejoicing this morning is our complete justification. Listen to what he says. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let's just break that down. There is no condemnation. Now, let's just be clear about just one thing at the outset of our pursuit of this phrase, okay? It doesn't say that there is no cause for condemnation in us, but that there is no condemnation to be found for us. That's a huge distinction because there is, in fact, plenty of cause for our condemnation. Have you not read? That we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked? That we were by nature objects of wrath like the rest of mankind? That we were aliens? Foreigners? There's plenty of reason for condemnation. When you get to this point in Romans, if you're reading it from chapter 1 to chapter 8, and you get to this point, you cannot have arrived to this point and think, you know what, I can see why Christ has saved me. I can see why Christ would redeem me. I can see why there's no condemnation for me, because look how great I am. There's no way for that. There's no way you can come to that conclusion in reading Romans. As you read Romans, it is abundantly clear. There is ample reason that you should stand condemned before God. Which makes this statement all the more magnificent. There's no condemnation. None. Paul had articulated in chapter 7 that the law was futile for salvation. And he finishes with that incredible demonstration of that futility. And now, he finishes this up. That the power, uh, the law is powerless and liberating. It only functions to condemn us. And we stand right here as guilty as the day is long and there is no condemnation. None. I want you to consider the words of of Donald Barnhouse. Donald Gray Barnhouse. He says, furthermore, it's not said that there are no faults, no failures, no infirmities, no inconsistencies, no fleshly corruptions, but it is said that there is no condemnation. As we go on through the epistle, we shall see the last five chapters are almost exclusively devoted to exhortations to righteousness and expressed in such terms that it is impossible to hold otherwise than that these Christians in Rome were filled with the things they were exhorted to abandon and practicing the things they were commanded to leave. Yet in spite of this fact, there was no condemnation against them as there is none against us now from the moment that we are in Christ. As you look through the rest of Romans, you can see that Paul is commanding them to love one another more perfectly, to submit to authority more completely, to not pass judgment incorrectly, to have compassion toward the foreigner, compassion toward the weak, to live in harmony, to live in unity. And he's not commanding them these things as if they never failed. He is writing to them because these are the areas in which they fail to glorify God. And when you read Romans from chapter 8 to the end of the letter, you don't get the sense that Paul wrote chapter 8 verse 1 and then gets to chapter 13 and says, well, now I've got to backtrack. He understood entirely 
that the last five chapters of Romans were coming when he wrote 8.1. There is no condemnation. How can he say that? Because our condemnation or our lack thereof is not built around our obedience. It's built around Christ's. And what this does is it gives us great hope, great confidence. And the justification that we have received. We're going to fail and we're going to sin. When we read the New Testament, when we read the Old Testament, it should be abundantly clear where we are failing. If you can read the Scriptures and walk away thinking, man, I'm doing all right. You need to read them again and read them correctly. Because the Scriptures point a glaring light into the darkest recesses of your soul and say, here is where you fall short of the glory of God. And that's good. It's good for us to hear that. I want you to uh, take, for example, Matt's sermon last week. Did anyone feel good and fluffy in that first 15 minutes of that sermon? Anybody? If you did, you're a sadist or you weren't paying attention. Because here's what, here, here was Matt's strategy. I've talked to him a lot this week, so I mean, like, this isn't coming out of left field. I know it's here. Well, we talked a lot about it. This is how I described his opening portion of his sermon last week. He came out and he hit us in the gut with a sledgehammer. And then when he knocked the wind out of us, he continued to wail on us with that sledgehammer for another 15 minutes until we could not stand any longer. Anybody else feel that way? I felt that way. And here's what I need you to understand. That was good. All right? You heard that and you thought, oh man, no one should talk like that. You know what? Then you're not going to like reading the Bible. You read the Bible, it tells you, hey, listen, you're a sinner. You're a failure. You're not a good father. You're not a good mother. You're not a good husband. You're not a good servant of Christ. You're not faithful to the Lord. That's what the scripture is going to tell you. So Matt comes and he gives us this just heavy, heavy introduction. I don't know about y'all, but I was reeling a little bit. It took me a minute. And we were talking through the week with our man. I hope that everyone was able to hear the great hope and glory at the end of that message. I hope, I hope you weren't so distracted and thinking about your own sin that you missed how he concluded that message. He concluded that message with the glorious hope of the gospel. He concluded that message with the promise that we are free. He concluded that message with the content of Romans 8.1. Are you a failed father? Are you a struggling mother? Are you a hurting spouse? Are you an incomplete employee? In Christ, there is still no condemnation for you. Don't miss that. I was so helped by that message. I love a message that has a giant pill that is too hard for me to swallow. That I can get choked on a little bit. I just want to say I'm thankful to the Lord that we have pastors in this body that will give us a pill that's too hard to swallow. And then help us swallow it. Amen? That's what... Barnhouse was saying 
We have that happening in Romans, and we have that happening with us. We, we read through the rest of Romans, and, and we're sitting there, we're saying, you know, I need, I need to not judge others the way that I do sometimes. I need to have more compassion. I need to be more loving. I need to be more, 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 and less wicked. I need these things. But our position in Christ, our justification before God, is not dependent upon how well we obey. It was dependent upon how well Christ obeyed. And that's a good deal, is it not? Paul says here that there is no condemnation who are, for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think it's important that we also consider the importance of grammatical structure in this, in this passage. First, we need to know that uh, Paul uses the uh, emphatic no. There's a bunch of different ways that you can say no in the Greek language. And, and we're not going to nerd it up too much this morning. But you can say no normally. You can say no emphatically. You can say no double emphatically. Paul uses the emphatic. Udain. Right, you just hear that. You're like, ooh, that's kind of intense. Udain. It's like a, uh, like a guttural. He starts with udain. And he, but he does something interesting. He puts it at the primary position in the sentence. So the very first. And you're familiar enough with the Greek language that you know that in the Greek language when you put the, uh, you want to put the word of the most importance at the first of the sentence. Because uh, word order is not important in the Greek language because it's inflected and it's a nightmare to try to read and learn. But you understand, okay? But he puts udain first. He uses the, emph- the, the emphatic no. But then he puts it in the first position so that it does function as a double negative. As an emphatic double negative. Not the ume double negative, but the emphatic double negative. So the point is that when you come to this point, you're reading about justification, you're reading about sanctification, you're reading about the inability of the law, and then you get to Romans 8, 1, no, no, condemnation. Because Paul wants wants you to understand this. He didn't want any room for doubt. For you to walk away and think, well, there might be a little condemnation. There's none. Not even a thought of it. That's where you and I sit this morning in Christ. I want you to think back of all all the mess that this week was. In Christ, there is no condemnation. You You stand just as justified this morning, as you did last week. And I got news for you. There's a mess coming this week and every week after. And if you are in Christ, you are as justified today as you will be then. It would be as impossible for God to condemn Christ as it would be for Him to condemn us who are in Christ. Because our justification is complete. And it is built upon the finished work of Christ. Not upon your incomplete work. See, I told you, reasons to rejoice. And there are lots of them. So we have the completed gospel. Completed justification. And I just want to turn our attention to the the completed ministry of Christ. There's an interesting word here. 
It seems kind of out of place, maybe forced in if you're not paying attention to the context of the letter. Maybe if you're not familiar with uh, the nature of redemptive history. It's that word now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now. Some will take this word and it'll rightly highlight that that right now, the saint stands free from condemnation. That is not just a future promise. That one day you will not be free from condemnation in heaven, but right now you are free from condemnation. Right now you are justified. Right now you have been made right in the eyes of God. And that's right. And that's good. But I think that's incomplete. I want to show you why. Because if we, if we come to that conclusion, if we, if we understand the term now in the strictly temporal sense, I believe it strips it of its ultimate gravity. Understood temporally, one could agree, hey, you know what, right now I am under no condemnation. But what if, like what if I mess up? I mean like bad mess up. Like cultural taboo, bad. Like bad in the Baptist church, bad. What if I mess up like that? Am I going to be free from condemnation then? That's the weakness of understanding now, strictly temporal. That's not Paul's point. Paul doesn't want you to just understand that right in this moment, you are free from condemnation. There's something more powerful than that. Because to argue that right now you are free from condemnation is to base the argument of our justification rooting it in our emotion and our experience. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul roots it in the finished work of Christ. The best and clearest approach to the word now is to understand it in reference to the covenant that is secured by the finished work of our Savior. Just ask yourself the question, to what has Paul pointed throughout this letter as the means of our salvation? In what way are we justified? We're justified by faith, right? Faith through whom? Through Christ. By grace, through faith, in Christ. It's always, from chapter 1 through the end, justification is by faith in Christ. Look at what Christ has done. Consider, in chapter 1, Paul begins his treatise by contrasting the wickedness of man in verses 18 through the end of the chapter with the finished work of Christ in in verses 16 and 17. He begins the letter with the high point of our redemption in Christ and then contrasts and shows why we need that redemption. In chapter 2, Paul describes the justice of God in judging sinners. He's right to judge. And then demonstrates that Christ has received God's judgment on our behalf. In chapter 3, well, it's the finished work of Christ that satisfied the wrath of God and delivered righteousness to the saints. In chapter 4, he shows that Abraham's faith was but a foretaste of what Christ would accomplish. 
Chapter 5, Christ not only did what Adam could not, but he restored what Adam destroyed. Chapter 6 is Christ who sets us free. His finished work that sets us free from the wages of sin and makes us slaves to righteousness. And in chapter 7, we're released from the bondage of the law and carried away as, as captives to Christ as he marches forward in victory after completing the work of redemption. Over and over and over again, Paul points us to the finished work of Christ. And then he comes to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now, now, because of what Christ has accomplished, nothing less and nothing more, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is rooting this now in the completed work of Christ. When you look at the way that the New Testament authors argued concerning the work of Christ, they argued it in the scope of redemptive history. That now the time has come. Now the kingdom of God is at hand. Now the veil has been torn. And now we have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ who intercedes on our behalf. Now. Why do we have no condemnation? Why do we stand uncondemned? Because now Christ has completed the work. Have you noticed a theme in every one of these reasons to, to rejoice? They all point back to Jesus. We don't rejoice because of how great we're doing. We rejoice because of how great Christ is and what he has done over and over and over again. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, it just seems like everything that you're saying is we should look back to Jesus. You're getting it. You're getting it. When we understand now to refer to Christ and His completed work, then we grow confident. Then we grow bold. As long as we understand now to be temporal and temporal only, we'll always have this, this wishy-washy wondering if it's going to get any better or any worse on our behalf. Are we going to do, are we, what are we going to do to mess it up? Because if there's anything that I am skilled at, it's messing things up. So give me a chance. But when we understand it, that now refers to what Christ has done. No, 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 no. Now we're confident. Now we're bold. Because we're not basing our confidence and our boldness in ourselves. We're basing our confidence and our boldness in Christ. I am not condemned. I will not be condemned. I can never stand under the condemnation of God Almighty again. Because Christ has stood in my place and bore the wrath of the Father on my behalf. He has imputed His righteousness to me. Because He has borne my wickedness on His shoulders. That is great and glorious news. Will I fail? Yes, gloriously, magnificently. Will I fall into temptation? Magnificently will I fall into temptation. I will do it spectacularly. I will absolutely and completely sin again. Not willingly. But because the sin nature still exists, I will. But I have a Christ who has purchased my pardon and it is not an incomplete or temporary or conditional pardon. It is absolute and it is eternal. And that's my only hope for entering the promised land. 
crossing that glorious river that Bunyan described into the celestial city. When I fail, when I sin, I will not dare to use this glorious pardon that has been extended to me as a license for immorality. No, 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 no. If you hear that this morning, you have heard something entirely different than what is being preached. You've heard something entirely different than the gospel of Jesus Christ, entirely different than what Paul is arguing. No, when I fail, when I sin, when I bring shame to my Lord, I will mourn that I have brought a a blight on the name of the one who redeemed me. I will repent and I will strive to be a more faithful ambassador of Christ. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has finished my pardon. And I will live my days rejoicing in the completed ministry of my Savior. Final reason to rejoice is the complete security of the saint. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an important clause in this verse. For those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a promise for everyone. Do you hear that? There is therefore now no condemnation for anyone anywhere. That's not what Paul says. He says there is therefore now no condemnation for whom? For those who are in Christ Jesus. That means then that there is a a world around us that stands condemned. Jesus told Nicodemus that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but the world was already condemned. We live in a culture surrounded by people who at this moment are condemned. And if we live in the reality that there is therefore now no condemnation for us, how could we not but declare the glorious beauty of the gospel to a condemned world? There is an exclusion to the gospel. There are those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are outside of Christ Jesus. I've seen many people slide into the error of thinking I'm in so I'm good. I'm in so I'll ridicule everyone that's out. I'll look down my nose at those who are opposed to Christ. And it can be easy to do that. But should we not be the people who are in Christ Jesus and recognize that we are in Christ Jesus solely by the grace of Christ Jesus and therefore declare our Savior to those who stand condemned as we once did? All right, I chased that rabbit for just a minute. The complete security of the saint for those who are in Christ Jesus. We ask the question then, 
If there's an exclusion in this statement, who is then in Christ Jesus? How do we know that we're in Christ Jesus? I spent years ministering to people that said you can't know. You can't know whether or not you really belong to Christ. They've just never read the New Testament. I'm convinced of it. They've never read John. Because everything John writes is so that you may know. His gospel, so that you may know. His epistles, so that you may know. His gospel, it was so elegant and so beautiful and so profound that maybe some people didn't catch that this was written so that you may know. Even though he explicitly says, well, I wrote this so that you may believe. But he wrote his first epistle on like a five-year-old level that said, here is how you know. You don't get to have a different opinion on this. He states over and over again how you know. So let's listen to how John says you can know. You ready? All right. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. Oh, there's, that's good, right? By this we know. Here's how we know. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God has been perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Like I said, you don't get to disagree with that. You can disagree with some of the things I've said this morning, but with John, you don't get to disagree with that. That's the inspired word of the living God. Speaking through the Apostle John, saying to you, you want to know how you know if you belong? You want to know how you know if there is no condemnation for you at this moment? Then you obey. You keep His commandments. You walk as He walks. And you say to me, hold on a second. This entire morning... You've been up here saying that our salvation is built upon the finished work of Christ and the grace through faith that He has extended to us. And now, now you're going to bring up works? Yep. Listen, y'all smart enough crowd, you know. We're saved by grace through faith. And we joyfully obey the commands of God because we have been saved. By grace through faith. Not a means to our salvation, but because of our salvation. Now I want you I want you to think about that moment for just a moment. We joyfully submit to God's commands. Not begrudgingly, not woefully. You ever seen a, a kid obey when they're told to clean their room? Right? In, in, in their awful, horrible, sinful nature, 
I know none of your kids are ever like that, right? You tell the kid to clean their room, and what do they do? They slump their shoulders, they swallow, okay, and they walk, and then they go do it. That's, that's kind of the way that so many of us approach obeying the commands of God. Oh, i got to do it. No. Somewhere out there, there's the special family where the father says, go clean your room. And the child says, I would love to do that, father. <laughs> I know it's somewhere. It's just not here. But it should be how we respond to our father in heaven. Love your neighbor. Oh, I can do that. Submit to your leadership. Oh, I can do that. Give cheerfully. Oh, I I can do that. Why? You can ask me anything you want. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And I stand under no condemnation. Are you kidding me? You just tell me whatever I need to do. I'll do it. Should that not be our posture? So yes, I am bringing up works. I am bringing up obedience to the command. Joyfully. It's the outcropping of our redemption that's been secured for us in Christ. According to John, that's how you know. And if you're in Christ, we got it out of the way, now we know how to tell. You can tell if you are in Christ. You need to know that you are in the most secure position that you could ever be in. Consider John again. He's so helpful. In John 10, 27-29, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Sound familiar? It's like John is consistent. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Oh. So you're telling me, you're telling me that I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that my sins are washed away, and that I stand under no condemnation whatsoever. And you're telling me that not only do I stand under no condemnation whatsoever, but that I am firmly gripped in the hand of my Savior, and that there is nothing that can be done to pluck me out of His grip. Is that what you're telling me? And John would say, yes, that is precisely what I'm telling you. To which the only logical and natural response is, then whatever you want me to do, I'm in. Amen? So slay dragons. Amen. I'll do it. Stand against a culture that is railing against the goodness of God. Amen. I'll do it. Yeah, whatever you want. Be reviled, be hated, be persecuted. Yes, I'm in. Tell me where to go, how to do it. I'm in. Amen? Should that not be our posture? Is it yours? It's easy to say, yeah, oh yeah, I'm in right here in this room. But out there, at your job, with your family, around the table, with the awkward conversation, the cousin with the purple hair that thinks differently than you, 
Is it you? Or do you cower? I'm saying to you, do not cower. Stand strong. Stand bold. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And not only is there no condemnation, but there is no separation either. And that is exactly what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 8. He moves from no condemnation in verse 1 to no separation in verse 39. And he intends to do that purposefully. And I want to close this morning just by demonstrating by letting Paul demonstrate how secure we are in Christ because we are justified in Christ. We stand uncondemned in Christ. He says, beginning in chapter 8, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? So we're not going to just give the context of all of chapter 8 there, but just go read it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how he will not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul begins with no condemnation and he concludes with no separation because the two are inseparably linked. If we are justified by Christ, then we are secure in Christ. And if we are secure in Christ, we are eternally secure in Christ. So let us march forward into the gates of hell. And let us proclaim the gospel and the kingdom that it is declaring. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we stand under no condemnation in your Son, Jesus Christ. We confess freely that we are not in this position because of our own merits, because of our own goodness, but solely because of your Son. God, what a great and glorious gift you have given us in this wonderful gospel. As we turn our eyes and our hearts toward the table, may we approach it with solemnity. May we approach it with gratitude. And may we approach it with a desire to boldly go forth and proclaim the death of your Son and His soon return. Lord, we thank you and we rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen. At Maynardville Fellowship, we practice a close communion. That means that we invite our members to the table. And we invite those who have a recommendation from a church member or a like-minded church this morning. I know that's difficult for us to understand as to why, why we would guard the table. But the alternative is uh, not great. That we would treat the table of the Lord so cavalierly that we would just let anyone come with no fencing whatsoever. 
The reason that we guard the table is because, first, we love the Lord. We want to honor Him. And second, because we love you. We don't want you to participate in the table in a manner that is unworthy of the table and the Lord it represents. So this morning, you're not part of our body and, and, and the table's not extended to you. I, I pray that you not find offense in that, but you find a, a measure of joy. That there's a church that is, is careful enough to examine the people that come to the table. That loves you enough to examine you before you come to the table. There's not a person in here this morning that will participate in the table who has not first had the table withheld from them. They've had to be examined. They've had to be uh, had their uh, testimony uh, checked. We want to make sure. We want to be careful. So see this as an act of love toward you and an act of love toward God. And I invite you to the table this morning.